0: listener production
1: okay let's start by just taking a deep breath (sighs) welcome to come out wherever you are this is a safe space for curious people to learn more about the coming out experience so congratulations you're now a part of our community and because this is a podcast about the coming out experience, it's only fair that I go first. My name is Sean Zeps, and I am gay. I first came out in early 2000 when I was 12 years old, and I last came out, I was thinking about this in the car right over here. I last came out four days ago, which feels like a really big gap for me because I feel like I'm used to coming out all the damn time. But four days ago, someone asked me, what my husband's sexual orientation was. Specifically, they said, he doesn't seem gay, is he? And then (laughs) through my explanation, I also self-identified myself to paint a picture for them. So yeah, it's been four days. Um, Today, we're welcoming a new member to the Come Out Wherever You Are family, David. I'm extremely excited. I have wanted to talk to David maybe for five years. So this is a big moment for me, pat myself on the back. David, could you introduce yourself and tell us when you came out for the
0: first time and when you came out for the last time? Mm, uh, My name's David J. I use he, him pronouns. I am um, calling in from Oakland, California, which is unceded, Ohlone territory. And I'm also the uh, founder and i um, currently on the board of an organization called the Asexual Visibility and Education Network or Asexuality.org, uh, which is a grassroots movement to create a safe space for ace people to explore identities and build public awareness. Uh, the first time I came out was at nerd camp when I was in early high school. Really just trying to figure out what my sexual identity was, um, trying to figure out if I was broken um, and what it might mean to to be asexual and not be broken. And the last time it came out was, I think, three hours ago to to someone who works at Twitter um, because I was talking about my history as someone who has built movements and communities online um, and wanted them to uh, understand the experiences that have shaped me. David Jay is an asexual activist
1: and arguably one of the most famous asexual people on the planet. A couple of things you're going to need to know about David and asexuality before we get started. The first one, David actually has a daughter named Tavy, who he shares legal parenting rights with, a married couple named Avery and Zeke. The three of them co-parent together in California. The second one... David and I get into a lot of different types of asexuality in a ton of detail in this conversation. But just so you know, before we get started, asexuality refers to someone who has little to no sexual attraction to other people, regardless of their gender. Asexual people often refer to themselves as aces, which David and I do throughout the conversation. And lastly, you're going to be able to hear how excited I am to talk to David. Yes, he's unbelievable, but also he's American. I finally got to speak to another American. Here is David. Unlike a lot of members of the LGBTQI plus community um, who no matter when they came out over the course of the last 10, 20, 30, 40, even 50 years, there was documentation about what it meant to be a homosexual, what it meant to be lesbian, even bisexuality, actually even transgender, non-binary. There were terms, definitions, uh, articles, diary entries, uh, videotapes of members of each of those communities discussing what it meant. So whether you had the internet or not, if you searched hard enough, you could find some type of information. Not the case for asexuality. In the sense that 20 years ago, I mean, you're you're telling your story, but I think it's important for people to understand. Um, when you say you're a part of this movement, your discovery, your uh, research, your uh, going on interviews and talking about this over the course of the last 20 years has was really quite revolutionary because there wasn't a lot written about it. I'm interested in what it is like to search for
0: something when there's nothing there. I I remember so I, I went to the search engines at the time. This was I was in high school in the 90s. So mm. I'm going to Yahoo and I'm typing in the word asexual and what I get are papers about plant biology. No, you do not. Or papers about mm. like amoebas. So the first community, the first community for sexual people, which actually which predates the one I started by about eight months, um, was a single threaded email list on Yahoo called the Haven for the Human Amoeba. I I was I wasn't finding anyone, but it's not because there weren't people out there. Um, sure, when I was looking. Of um, in conferences about neurodiversity, um, there were panels happening about asexuality. So so there okay. was there was a discussion that was happening like in obscure academic literature, it was there, but there wasn't anything that I could find as a kid in high school.
1: Wow, okay. So when you first hear the word asexual, even though it might not be blatantly obvious that it's connected to humans, was there a moment where you went this makes sense? That there's a relief here in knowing that actually the way that I'm feeling, that there's something here. How did it feel
0: to be able to attach yourself to a word at all? So I, around middle school, around maybe fifth or sixth grade, I started to realize that my friends were starting to have crushes on people and I wasn't. And I assumed that I was a late bloomer. Everyone told me this was a thing that was gonna happen. So it was just like sitting there waiting for it to happen. Um, and that was the the first awareness I had of my identity. It was just like, well, I'm waiting while everyone else isn't. Um, and then around maybe seventh, eighth grade, I got to a point where like that waiting was causing so much anxiety that I thought I I, I should stop thinking of myself as waiting to get started with my life and I should start thinking about, or with with this part of my life that everyone says is essential to my humanity. And I should instead start thinking about how to be the person I am. Beautiful. And I uh, I think I, I started using the word asexual just to describe this big question mark of like, what does this mean? And um, I saw one reference to the word asexual in a, a lecture that was talking about um, I think they. the lecture was talking about sexual orientation and it said, LGBT, uh, LGBA. And they were kind of moving through it quickly and I raised my hand and I said, what does the A stand for? And the lecturer said, this will be really hard to understand, but we think that there are some people out there who just identify as asexual and they don't want relationships with anyone. And that, first of all, it's a very inaccurate definition. <laughs> but second of yeah, all, yeah. Like, that that was for for the next, I want to say, five years, that was the one drop I had of any validation. And I think that came from a paper of something called the Storm's Model of Sexual Orientation, which hypothesized the existence of asexuality without ever talking to any asexual people. <laughs> um, and so that's that's sort of where things were, but the the rest was just kind of for me to figure out. Uh, and that was really hard and really scary. And I was also really fortunate to go to the the, one of the few high schools in St. Louis that had a lot of out kids and that had a really active celebratory discussion about what it meant to be gay and bi and so there was this sense in in the people around me that like it wasn't like you're straight or you're broken there was a sense that you should be figuring out how sexuality works for you um and that uh that was really i think a lifeline for me to be able to to recognize this is as a, a, an invitation to live life my own way, which I think I've mm. been able to do in, in ways that make yeah, me really happy, yeah. and not a problem to be fixed. Wow, there is so much coming up in
1: my little brain right now. The first question is, because sexual attraction is only one type of attraction, you're talking about being surrounded by other uh, queer out people. Do asexual people also identify with other identities, like straight or gay or lesbian or bisexual? Uh, and if that's the case, Do asexual people have to come out multiple times?
0: Uh, Yes and yes. First of all, I'll say asexuality is itself a spectrum. Asexual people either experience no sexual attraction at all or so little sexual attraction that it doesn't really have an impact. Got it. There are also people who are identified as gray-a. They're somewhere in the spectrum between sexual and asexual, so they'll experience occasional sexual attraction or they'll experience just a real, like, barely perceptible sexual attraction but it's there. Um, And then there's also people who identify as demisexual people who experience sexual attraction only in the context of a, only after they formed a close emotional relationship with someone. Um, And I'll I'll get, get to a second about sort of where those identities came from and what it was like for us as a community to embrace that spectrum. There's a kind of coming out there of like, you're on the spectrum, how do you figure out where you fall? And then There's also, uh, quickly as the community came together in those early days, um, and people were coming together and telling their stories, we started realizing that some asexual people experience really strong romantic attraction, and other people don't. So um, I uh, personally identify as aromantic, an aromantic asexual. So I'm someone who has a very high desire for emotional intimacy with other people, um, and I have this, like, amazing community and multiple partners. But I don't tend to, like, fall in love with people. I don't get, like, butterfly-in-my-stomach crushes. Uh, other ace people I know really do. Um, and they might identify as panromantic or biromantic or heteroromantic or homoromantic. And so they're experiencing romantic attraction. They're just not feeling the same drive to make sexuality a part of that. So if you are—and I, I want to take a step back. So you're, you're quite
1: young. You see this word— they haven't actually spoken to anyone who's asexual yet, but they're hypothesizing that it's a thing. And, and from that period until now, what's the discovery process? If you're not sexually attracted to people uh, or romantically attracted to people, how do you, and I'm sure this is a question that um, the only word I can think of is like naysayers might throw at you, which is like, well, then how do you even figure it out if you haven't tried anything yet? What does it look
0: like to kind of discover and figure out, no, 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 this is exactly who I am? I I, I won't claim to know exactly who I am. And I hope no one listening does either. Yeah. But I think w- one of one of the things that, one of the phrases that comes up, um, and, and it resonates a lot with my experience in, in kind of the ace world, and especially ace intimacy, is breaking script. First of all, it's not that asexual people don't try sex. Some have reasons to and uh, that don't have to do with sexual attraction and try it. Um, Many choose not to, and you don't need to to have a valid experience of emotional connection and intimacy with another person. Um, Mm. But you don't need to try it to know that you feel differently about it because we are surrounded by this script that tells you that there is a way to form a relationship with someone that really matters. And it's romantic and it's sexual and there's things you're supposed to feel and there's activities you're supposed to do and there's things that your body is supposed to do, like all of them line up. And and as an ace person, I was very painfully aware that what the script told me I was going to feel and what I felt were not the same thing. And I think that's something that ev- every queer person can identify with. Queer people, especially now, and we're getting there as an ace community, like like there's there's one script that doesn't resonate and another script that does um for for me especially in those early days like there was a script that didn't resonate and then a blank page i had no idea what wow. to do how my relationships were going to form like i knew i wanted people in my life that are on. i knew i wanted kids and i had no idea outside of the scripts like other than trying to like play a role in a script that didn't match how i felt like i had no mm-hmm. idea how to get those things. And so the process of asexuality, I think it's it's or, or my, my process of, of, of what I call like ace liberation. It's not about trying stuff to verify that I don't like it. It's about figuring out how do I understand how to build intimacy with other people in ways that are genuine expression of like who I am and how my body works and how like my desire for intimacy works. Like how do I learn that well enough that I can invite another person in, in a way that's not only liberating for me, but liberating for them. Wow. So at a a young age, you've talked about wanting
1: wanting children. Mm -hmm. When you started to kind of explore what your life might look like, specifically as an asexual person, did you think in that moment, all of that is not possible for me? Was there a moment where you thought, shit, maybe I won't be able to find a relationship. Like, how how am I going to find a relationship? And if I'm asexual, maybe I won't be able to have children. I'm, I just want to hold space for, if, I, if that's something you knew you wanted, is there this massive disconnect for young people who are exploring what it would be
0: like to be asexual if they're going, damn, maybe those aren't options for me? There, there's, for me, there's this simultaneous narrative of like, Paralyzing fear and radical hope. I was lucky enough to have queer elders in my life. And I looked at what they had been through and the the ways in which they had managed to live lives that had felt completely impossible to their younger selves. And I was like, okay, like this, like in the queer world, this happens, right? like this this happens in ways that that make what i'm struggling with for my like fairly privileged cis white male <laughs> place like make it look like nothing or not like nothing but like like the put it in perspective and so i think i i had this i had this deep belief that something radically unexpected and unimaginable was possible and i had a really deep fear that it just wouldn't happen i think like up up until the moments when it did, and, and through the moments when it was happening, um, that I that I was able to kind of live that uh, like step into that life that I didn't know how to imagine. Um, I think that's something that I know has resonated with a lot of other ace people. Um, mm. Is w- there is there is such a profound and resonating story that we are destined to be alone forever, and uh, despite what feels like this this growing and beautiful kind of tapestry of stories about how that's not true that come out of our community. Um, and I think intersectionally, come out of the queer community more broadly, that's something that everyone grapples with. Um, and I think it's something that uh, as ACEs, we're grappling with on on a systemic level.
1: Mm. So you're surrounded by uh, queer people at a young age. Um, you seem to have a an aura of hope And everything that you say, which is beautiful. When you first started to talk about this and explore it with other people, what some would deem like the coming out experience, I'm exploring what it would be like to refer to it as welcoming in potentially. But for you, what are those first interactions like? Who were they with? How
0: old were you? And how did they respond when you said, I think I'm this? I was in middle and early high school. And I remember thinking that I didn't want to talk about this with other like with straight men um, because there was such a strong like taboo against emotional disclosure and also um, like se- sense of like gender performance around sexuality. I was like, that does not yeah. feel safe. <laughs> for yeah, <me."> good. Right. <laughs> um, at first, I didn't feel comfortable talking about it to straight women um, because I was afraid of their sexuality. Like, I I was terrified that someone was going to be attracted to me. And I got over that, I think, pretty quickly. As as I, mm. But like, I didn't know what sexuality was. I didn't know yeah. what it did to people. I knew it could hurt people. I knew it like made people behave in ways that were strange and confusing. I knew that it had the power to destroy my friendships if I wasn't careful. Yeah. And I was like, I need to stay away from this. So I talked to, um, I talked to queer women. And I remember having these conversations where they would kind of like talk about whatever girl they had a crush on and the like small drama of that. And then I I would talk about like, what even is sexuality? He, hearing them talk about their sexuality was a really important part of how, how I learned this language that I felt like the rest of the world was speaking they didn't know. And and so the the first places times where I came out were like that. But this is something that I've I've seen as a theme. When when I go to a meetup with ace people, like people will talk and joke about sexuality a lot, but there's there there's one of the dynamics is almost like a team of anthropologists getting together and being like, Can you believe like the crazy stuff we saw? Like people can be sexually attracted to someone they think is ugly. How is that a thing? Like Yeah Um Wow And so so there there's this kind of need to just understand how to navigate this thing in the world around me so I could feel safe. I'm wondering, it because
1: in the time that I've spent sitting with your specific community in the larger queer mm-hmm. community, one of the things that I've realized, and this is true across the full LGBTQI plus community spectrum, is that oftentimes you have a conversation with someone at a young age, specifically if you're in middle school or high school or even in, in university days. Mm-hmm. And the first thing you hear back is like, yeah, but how do you know? Or like, you haven't explored it yet. Or like, well, I didn't know either. Like, just give it time. <laughs> I'm interested in what are the things that you hear most frequently from people when you're speaking about asexuality and, and what you heard most frequently back then?
0: I think that there, there are a lot of similarities. <laughs> like, just give it time. Um, this is a phase that you'll get over. There is mm. a lot of uh, people thinking that you need to try it. Or thinking that the right person will gonna will come along. Like uh, I I I think of it some as as the the Green Eggs and Ham logic of like you you just you just haven't found the sexuality for you yet,
1: and yeah. <laughs> when you do, you'll be yeah. a complete
0: person. Um, tragically, there are also people who see it as a challenge, who see it as their job to fix an asexual person, um, and we see aces who are um, targets of violence at times because of that.
1: There's a larger conversation Mm -hmm. around where asexuality sits within the LGBTQI plus community. And what's fascinating um, is that there's actually an intense similarity across each of these letters in our experience with others, allies or non-allies, in their desire to assist us, you use the perfect words, in being whole. Mm -hmm. You're not complete until, oh, you Mm -hmm. haven't had sex yet? Let's find you a man. Mm -hmm. Let's get you laid so that you can be an adult, so that Mm -hmm. you can be the human. I find it really interesting to hear you use those words. It's like, okay, you're asexual. Good for you. Thanks for telling me. Um, Let's figure out if this is true. Like As if Harriet the Spy, like Sherlock Holmes, is going to come and assist you (laughs) in, in finding out your truth. And that's fascinating to hear you articulate it. Do you feel that asexual people... Need to come out, in the sense, and let me just iterate this because mm-hmm. I, I I want I know everyone's case is very different. Oftentimes with sexuality, um, you have to identify. You have to tell your parents. Usually, I have to tell your parents who you are, so that they're going to be aware that I'm going to be in relationships with X type of people. Well, mm. if you're asexual and and you're not interested either in romantic relationships or sexual relationships, when does it need to come up
0: that you're asexual? Let me, let me think about the, when I told my parents, um, when I told people in my life and why mm-hmm. it mattered. Uh, so I, I, I told my parents um, my freshman year of undergrad. And I told them because I was about to start this website, asexuality.org, and I was about to start doing more public, really to to yeah. try to find more people like me. Like I d- still had never talked to another asexual person. Um, and I had mm. been through this really long hard road of trying to be okay with myself. And I I kind of knew that other people were out there and I wanted to talk to them, and I wanted them to not have a hardest as, as hard a time as I had. And uh so I told them and their response uh and their generally have been amazing and really supportive and, and great. But I think their, their response at that point was, first of all, it wasn't surprising. Like they'd seen me having a bunch of relationships that were really close but not sexual in high school. So they, something was up. And yeah. uh, they were afraid that naming it as an identity meant that I would limit myself. And okay. it was my job over, you know, I took that sort of as a challenge over the next few years and I think did this really successfully um, to to show them how... Uh, having a term to articulate my own experience was opening possibility because it allowed me to authentically communicate who I was and where I was coming from and it allowed me to break out of that script mm. um, It wasn't cutting off possibility it was opening up possibility And I think that's the uh, the the sort of reason to to come out is at least at least it has been for me is that, there are a lot of expectations of sexuality that are put in our bodies and sometimes those get in the way. sometimes they get in the way of how friends want to socialize us with us, what they want to joke around about um sometimes they get away get a get in the way of how we talk about liberation and what we think liberation and what we think liberation of pleasure in our bodies looks like. sometimes they get in the way of, our ability to form intimate relationships with the people that we care about, um, or mm-hmm. who like we're drawn to and and want to form close relationships with, and so it, it becomes difficult to navigate life with a bunch of untrue. The weight of all these untrue expectations constantly on you. And the and for me, coming out as asexual has been a way to just let people invite people to release those expectations and embrace a new set of them.
1: Wow. Ooh, my mind is blown. I Just so we can dissect and paint a picture here, because I'm just trying to kind of imagine the day-to-day situations that we all mm-hmm. experience when someone says, "You think she's hot?" Yeah, you got a girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, exactly, big tits, huh? And and as a gay man and as an asexual man, that is troubling. It's mm-hmm. really hard to sit there and just go, hey, "Yeah, <laughs> cool," and then you're made to feel less than inadequate, um, in some situations not safe, in other situations literally forced to lie, to masquerade, mm-hmm. to act. And so what you're saying for anyone who might not have had a similar situation is by putting a label to it, by identifying your truth with others, you can create a safer space in conversation with people who care about you. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that
0: that's what I'm saying. And I would I would also... Uh, this this is a little bit of nuance, and then that, that I want to I want to tell a specific story about that. Um, Please. The uh, I I I think of the word as, asexual as a tool and not a label. Like wow. the the point is to give someone just the the opening word of a story about who I am, and if they really care about who I am, they're going to want to hear the rest of that story. And like that mm-hmm. story is not mm-hmm. going to look the same for me as it does for every other asexual person out there. Like the the way that I like where I am on the asexual spectrum, where I am on the romantic spectrum, what expectations of sexuality are put in my body and how I navigate about that, like all of what my intersecting identities are, all of that is going to shape what the word asexual means for me. So so just naming that it is inviting a story it, inviting people to understand who I am, but it's not the end of that by any means. Um yeah. And the uh, but one one place where the that word, that invitation to story was really powerful for me. I remember um, having a bunch of activist friends when I was in my 20s in San Francisco. And every uh, Monday we would get together and we'd go on this big, like they'd a bike and I'd rollerblade and we'd go on this, because I'm a big rollerblader, <laughs> we'd go on this big loop around the city. And I was out as asexual. We We went on the big loop. They would talk about their love lives for like half of it. And we're just like it would sort of be gossip and processing of things going on with various partners or crushes or whatever. Yeah. And for a long time, I was like, "Oh, we're like I felt excluded from that conversation." And then, of course, because I identified as asexual, I kind of had this moment of, "Oh, I I can talk about the exciting relationships I'm forming, even if they're not romantic, even if they're not sexual, with the same energy that they can talk about." that they talk about their sexual and romantic exploits. Like I can say, I met someone and we had an amazing four hour conversation and I can make it sound just as titillating and hot as the person they just hooked up with. And sure. uh, be, because I have this word, because I can let them know that this is how I'm experiencing intimacy and that intimacy is just as worthy of celebration. Um, and that that was sort of a, a pivotal moment for me of like, oh, I can like I can get access to that sizzle that normally mm. only sexual people get.
1: Wow. are queer people more accepting, uh, more understanding, more inquisitive than non-queer people throughout your experience? Y-
0: yes, and there's a speed bump. Talk to me. <laughs> queer people like have the vocabulary and like have have the reflection on personal experience. Like so much of the experience I've had as an ace person and the experience that many other Ace people have, like rhymes with queer experience. Yeah. That I think p- it, it really resonates. Um, and I, I identify as queer. Many um other aces in our community identify as queer. Many of us have intersecting queer identities of various <laughs> yeah, sorts. Yeah. So um, so there's a lot of overlap there. And there's this speed bump, which is that I think a lot of p- queer people see sexual liberation as the defining project, one of the defining projects of queerness. And they don't see at first blush where asexual people fit in a narrative of sexual liberation. And I remember when I was very young, there was even a like, like I'd show up at the, at the campus queer alliance in undergrad and be like, I'm asexual and I want to help out and like be an activist and join your group and do all this stuff. And the, the, the folks who ran it kind of sat back and were like, we don't know if you're the enemy or yeah. if you're on our side and i think it took a moment for them to realize that uh unless we are liberated to recognize that sexuality is what we don't want we can't be sexually liberated unless we're liberated to recognize that um sexuality is one path to intimacy but not the only path and not an essential path and that it needs to needs to fit in this broader spectrum of all the ways that we can connect powerfully as people like um that uh, that we we have an incomplete picture of sexual liberation, and so I think w- once once people can see that, can see how how we're part of a liberatory project, then everything works great.
1: Beautiful. I asked literally for that exact reason. As a member of this community, I completely understand. Um, uh, there's a perception of inclusivity. Uh, that I think a lot of straight or allies have about us. Like mm. you seem like a special group. You all seem to support each other online. It's so wonderful. But there also is really negative uh, internal debate that occurs. Mm. Like there's no one who can be meaner to a gay person than another gay person. And gay men in particular want to uh, to establish, and this is from my own experience, a hierarchy within our own community. Mm. Uh, this idea of um, like no one is nastier to a bisexual than someone who is a homosexual that once labeled themselves as one, right? They look at it as a transitional period. And so I was interested in kind of understanding in that strange hierarchy, if there are people who kind of aren't sure where to put you, and you've answered that beautifully when it comes to sexuality. But I do want to dive down a path. You keep Mm -hmm. using the word we. In 2001, Mm -hmm. when you create the Asexual Visibility and Education Network, how big was the we? Like that. That community, you've said multiple times, I didn't know anyone. You create this network. Talk to me about what it looked like. Uh, Did it pick up steam fast? Did people find you immediately? And then how has it grown over the years? So that that we,
0: that group of people has solidified. I think crucially, both solidified and diversified. Mm, Great. And uh, so at that point, so 2001, I'm sitting in my dorm room and coding up a website to try to find other asexual people like me. And uh, I did it. I just visited my friend on the Stanford campus and was talking about asexuality like I always did. And my friend said, hey, we have this new thing on campus called Google. You should try it because it's a really good search engine. (laughs) And um, I went to Google and the first thing I searched was for the word asexual. And that was the first time I found an essay by another asexual person. And that was this profoundly validating. Like I, I, couldn't finish reading. I had to get up and walk around campus for forty five minutes because it it felt like such such a deep inflection point in my life to have found another person telling with this experience telling this story. And uh, I I sat down to code Aven right after that. Um. Because I said, okay, like I now I know I'm not alone. Now I know there's other yeah. <laughs> people out there. And, and like there's this one article, but how do I find other people? And as I was, um, as I was coding the first version of this website, there were thousands and thousands of other people who had been through the exact same journey, or a, a very similar journey to the one I like, they had independently invented the word asexual. They were struggling to describe it, they felt like they were alone. And my website happened to come up. At this moment when Google was coming into broad use, which meant for the first time you could type the word asexual into a search engine and find other humans. Wow and so I became my website became the gathering point for all of these people but I wouldn't say that like you know I I was I was the the one who like discovered the land or whatever right <laughs> like sure. I happen to be the one who named a thing that lots and lots of people were experiencing simultaneously. And then yeah. we were able to find one another. And then as we found one another, I think the, the first thing that happened was this immense feeling of validation. Yeah. Of just feeling like we weren't alone. Uh, and then there was this recognition of our own diversity, of seeing how ACE experience showed up differently for different people seeing how, uh, realizing there were asexual, demisexual, and gray A people, um, realizing that there was, uh, romantic attraction and, um, and trying to kind of come to grips with, uh, the, the diversity of things that, uh, of ways that asexual identity could exist and and other forms of identity could exist. Um, Mm. and that's, that's when we, um, we came together as a community. I think because we'd seen a lot of the policing that was happening in the mainstream gay world, uh, we came together as a community. Um, and uh, we're talking about what happened on our forum when uh, someone would show up and they would see this community for the first time and they would post a really long, like they post their life story. They'd say, I can't believe I'm not alone. Here's all the thing I've experienced, things I've experienced, am I asexual? Like they, they, would, they would want us to tell them.
1: Yeah, can you tell me if I am, please?
0: And uh, we came together and said, uh, we want to have a policy of never answering that question, of saying it's not our role to tell you what your identity is. I can tell you how I use this word and why it's helpful for me. And if you decide to pick up this word and it's useful, use it. If you want to pick it up and redefine it a little bit, great. If you want to pick it up and then in two years you decide you want to put it down because that's your path towards self-understanding, that's great too. And like, we will not kick you out of this community if you do that. We'll celebrate it with you. And that I think that's, that value, that stance is, is still a struggle, but it's something that's in the DNA of the ace community that like, we're, we're here to help people figure themselves out, whatever words they use. Um, that is part of what helped words like gray and demisexual emerge because it was it was safe to show up have a shade experience and feel like the word asexual didn't quite apply to you um and still be accepted
1: oh that's just beautiful for some people it seems like uh based off of what you've just said that there might be a capacity for attraction to be a little fluid potentially and it and that it can change over time i'm just pulling a sentence you've said which is yeah someone might be with us for two years and then and then take a step away. If someone was once sexually attracted or interested in others and then loses that, or vice versa, has no sexual attraction for a long period of time, they meet an individual. Um, is asexual something that you can kind of move in and out of, or is it how do you respond when people ask that question?
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh I would say the that- The word asexual is there for anyone who finds it useful to pick it up. The people who pick it up have felt this way or close to this way for our entire lives. So there is some fluidity. I think as there's fluidity in all sexual orientation. Um, but there is certainly not an inevitable fluidity towards sexuality. It's not like asexuality is is a phase until the right thing happens and then you realize that sex is great. Um mm. it's uh people who are experiencing disinterest in sexuality um because they just got out of a bad relationship, or for for some other reason that makes sexuality complicated for them, especially I think people who who hold a history of trauma. Um, some of them may also choose a word like asexual, like may, fi- may find a, a, the word asexual useful. Some of them might not. Um, some of them may have complex intersecting experiences. And I think we welcome all of that. Uh, mm-hmm. But the the work of setting other people's expectations about my body and my style of intimacy, like, if I think it's just a thing I'm going through temporarily because of some other reason in my life, it's it's usually feels like too much to reset the expectations of everyone around me, uh, and so it tends to be for people for whom this is this feels like it's pretty stable. If you are young and you identify as asexual,
1: are our- Dating apps uh, uh are platforms that allow for people to meet and connect. Are they holding space and allowing asexuals to identify themselves? If you're not sexually attracted but you do want to have r- romantic relationships and you would like to go on dates, are the, are have the platforms caught up um as in allowing people to identify this is who I am?
0: Uh they have taken baby steps towards catching up. Okay. I would say there are ace-only dating apps that that exist out there um, for people, and so you can go and you can add uh, a, an asexual or demisexual identity on something like OkCupid. Okay um, I don't know where that fits in, like uh, Grinder or Scruff or um, the wider range of apps, but there's there's still a I think still a problem that the that apps are, are built around an experience of sexual attraction. I think 100%. It, in a way that frankly, a lot of times it doesn't even work for sexual people, um, for allosexual yeah. people, because you're like, <laughs> yeah. you're, you're looking at a picture of someone and then you're, uh, you're supposed to get, you know, to, to my asexual mind, I will say, I, you know, look at an app, I look at a picture of someone I'm supposed to get from that information about whether it would be fun to spend time with them. And, uh getting, getting from like, this is how their body looks to would it be fun to spend time with them without sexual attraction as a mediator is, is like, yeah. it's a really hard cognitive problem. You're like looking for like little hints um, about what they like to do or what it might be like to talk to them. Or, um, and you can get some of that from their profile. But uh, I find that um, I tend to be less focused on more on if I'm attracted to someone and more focused on, and this this is my aromantic self. So like not true for all asexual people. I'm, I'm kind of like, okay, I've got a tapestry of relationships in my life. I've got my relationship with my co-parents. I've got a partner in New York that's amazing. I've got other friends that let me explore things. And like those people collectively create the things, the experience that I have on a day-to-day basis. And there are some gaps in that community. There's some Relationships that I'm missing that allow me to explore sides of myself, um, allow me to explore things I care about that that I just don't have a way to explore right now, and I, I'm looking for people who fit into those gaps. And it is often really difficult to know from looking at someone's picture and the things they write on their profile, half of which are about you know what kinds of sexuality they like. Like it's really difficult to know if I'm going to get to explore with something, something with someone, something that is gonna make both of our lives feel more balanced and fulfilled. Um and so I think that uh there's a like there's there there's some surface level stuff, but behind it there's there's there are deeper questions being asked in these community, I think by romantic aces, by aromantic aces, about what what the how the script of dating even works and whether that's a good way to get people into intimate, emotionally supportive relationships with one another. Um, And I think at at least in discussions in our community, there's sort of this desire for more of a like, let's let people get together, let's let them get together and imagine lots of ways to be possible, You know that they could be close to one another and maybe some involve sexuality and some of them don't. And when two people get together and have energy, their job is to like figure out which of these million paths they wanna go on rather than like, I'm looking for someone to get together with, have a certain kind of sex with, maybe have a romantic relationship with or explicitly not have a romantic relationship with. But like, there's not that. I've been on, um, I think, three apps, three uh, dates from a dating app ever. Um, One of them resulted in me being friends with another queer dad so that my kid and his kid could play together. Um, And another one resulted in me helping someone write a book on evolutionary theory. And none of them <laughs> resulted in like anything romantic or sexual, and that's great. Yeah, but I want yeah. I, I I I want a, a dating world that like embraces that kind of uh, uh, complexity a little more.
1: I got to say, it's like the fifth time in this conversation that I'm like, this is a conversation for everyone to have. It doesn't (laughs) matter what your sexuality is. Everyone knows that these apps are broken in some (laughs) big way. Everyone. I haven't spoken to a single human being who's like, this is perfect for me. Even the people who are going in saying, I do not want to have, I want to just meet someone. I want to connect with someone. I'm not into the sex. I've done that. I've been there. I just want to connect with someone. But you're right. The apps are broken in the sense that we're, for many people, they're they're forced to just go, would I? Could I? Mm-hmm. Am I interested in sleep? Can I imagine myself with that person instead of what happens when you meet people in person, which is your challenge to see if you're interested in more than that? You talked about your story. So we can now specifically sit with you. You're a parent and you um and you are a parent with other co-parents. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about your relationship, your journey to, to to discovering that that worked beautifully for you. We'll spend less time now, I guess, talking about the big
0: community, but like, what's your truth? So I, I grew up, um, I'm the oldest of three siblings. I'm the oldest of 12 cousins on one side. I'm the oldest, the third oldest of 24 cousins on the other side. So like, I grew Ooh. up with a lot of kids around, like a lot yeah. of younger kids. A um, lot. And I loved it. Like, I loved the energy of being around young people. I loved uh, helping young people, like, explore and discover the world. I loved the energy of, like, wonder and curiosity and play that young people invited me into. And I remember just knowing really deep down that having kids in my life was something I wanted and also something I didn't know um, how to do. I remember being on the BART in San Francisco in my early 20s and seeing an ad for uh, a queer adoption service and just like have having this really deep emotional, like I almost cried um, mo- moment of like, I, I need to do that. I need to do that and I don't know how, but the fact that other queer families are doing it means that I have a path. And um, I started building this intimacy style what what I'd call a, a romantic intimacy where I would become really good friends with someone and then after maybe a year, I would um, invite them on a walk and I'd say, our relationship has become a really important part of my life and I want us each to talk about um, why our relationship matters. Like what's it doing in our life that means that we keep showing up? And all we would do is name the name why the relationship mattered to both of us and then commit to the things that we were already doing that really mattered. And maybe like set an intention to explore new stuff. But we'd start talking about a relationship as a relationship. And that I found was really transformational because it took people who I might've been close to, but maybe when they got a romantic partner, they would sort of like fade off um, to people who like they had made a promise to me to be present in my life. They understood why that was important. And I understood why that was important. And if that changed, we talked about it and we made an effort to not change that if we could. And so I had, a I I met um, uh, my now co-mom Avery at a conference in 2010 and we like hugely hit it off because we had, we had really similar professional interests. So we, we were kind of like the, the, co-workers that both of us really wanted. <laughs> so we yeah, started yeah. Get, meeting up in cafes and talking about all of our work and, and advising one another on our, on our careers um, and uh, formed a really deep connection around our work. And then after about a year, and I also formed a connection with uh, her then boyfriend, now husband, who's this brilliant climate scientist. And after about a year, I had that conversation with them. And they loved it. They loved that we got to kind of think with this deeper level of intentionality about how we connected. And so just, we just became a really integral part in one other's lives. Um, at one point I moved to New York and when I moved to New York, I went to them and said, um, I want to be in a long distance relationship with both of you. I want to fly back four times a year. I want to talk on a regular basis. Like I'm moving away, but I don't want to do the thing of like, I'm moving away and we'll stay in touch. I want like, I want to have a plan for how that happens because you all matter to me. And they, and they loved that. And so, uh, After we had been doing kind of our long distance thing, um, uh, in that time they got married, I was involved in the wedding, and they started talking about how they wanted to have family. And I had kind of been dropping hints. Like, I'd, I'd at that point learned how to form a committed relationship with a couple. I'd learned that if I aromantically escalated with a single person, then they would... Kind of have this disruption of a new relationship in their life at some point, and and I would have to work around it. But if I amorously escalated with with a couple, especially a couple of two people who I really loved, who uh, had a great relationship, then it was so it, it kind of made a stable configuration because they could do emotional intimacy stuff with me that didn't uh, didn't fit in their relationship with one another, but that they still wanted to do, which is true for any couple, right? And. Uh, and so so it would form this kind of like stable arrangement. Um, and I'd done that with them and had fantasized about raising kids in that kind of arrangement. Um, I thought about adoption, I thought about fostering, but I was like, if I could not do this alone, that would be great. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And uh, so I dropped hints that this is uh, the kind of family that I wanted. Um, and then after they got married, during one of my trips out to see them, they sat me down and said, We really want to start a family. We really want to have a kid. Um, We know we want you to be involved in that process. We don't know what that looks like, but we would like your help in figuring out. And that started two years of really just like meeting to talk about the families we came from, talk about the different scenario, like the different things this might look like. Um, It was, I'm kind of a community organizer that's what I do professionally now, Avery is yep. uh, a facilitator and poor Zeke was a little bit along for the ride. But we were like, we want nothing more than to get a whiteboard and post-it notes and like blacken <laughs> a whole weekend and talk yes. about our families of origin and what we want to recreate and what we don't. So we we did a lot of that. Um, and out of that came this realization that we wanted was uh, an equal, to, to be as equal across the three of us as we could. Um, we wanted me to have the same legal rights if we could pull that off. We wanted to equally contribute financially. We wanted to equally divide the time. We wanted to like equally have access to this beautiful relationship with a child. Um, and uh, and we kind of built and we had a sense of, of what is a family we want to do together. And so I think out of that, we built what's been a really beautiful and supportive uh, structure, where, um, like, I remember when Tavi was first born, I would spend half the night kind of like changing her diaper and making sure she got fed, and um, and Zeke would spend half the night, which means and Avery would like get to sleep a lot more because we were doing all the work, <laughs> or as much yeah, of the work yeah. as we could around the actual yeah. breastfeeding, and so all three of us got to like be parents of a newborn. With a lot more sleep than most parents of a newborn get, and from that moment on, there was this sense like, oh, we're having, we're having a really like a a beautiful, differently flavored in 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 some meaningful ways experience of, of family and a parenting that a lot of people have, um, and that kind of shared support has just been has, has kind of continued throughout the whole journey and has been really beautiful.
1: That's so impressive. I have to say, um, as a gay. Person who is also a father, all of the obstacles that I imagined I was going to face involved others. Mm. And then so much of the parenting experience is just doesn't even include anyone. It's just me and my husband just trying to keep the children alive. Like so much of so much of your experience of actual parenting and the challenges is just you under your house trying to do the best you can. And I think it's really mm-hmm. beautiful to hear you kind of talk about that unique relationship because that's parenting. It's just are we as a as a co-group of adults happy in doing this or as happy as we possibly can be What you did earlier on is just established aggressive and beautiful communication. Mm -hmm. Really early on in those relationships, Mm -hmm. you said, this is what I want and this is what I need, which makes parenting so much easier. In fact, it has nothing to do with sexuality or even gender. You're actually just establishing a really good way to be a person, which (laughs) is like, let's talk about what we need. And guess what? If we set that intention in the beginning, it's going to be so much easier to continue to be... In a relationship, whether that relationship be sexual, romantic, Mm -hmm. or not at all. And so that's really powerful. But one thing stuck with me. One thing Mm. did feel like uh, an element that is unique to your situation Hmm. that doesn't sit well with me. And it's that it's true. So much of the uh, parenting experience is just me and my husband under our little house, Mm -hmm. and we don't have to deal with people who don't agree with us that much. But one thing is that two parents, straight or gay, usually— though it might be difficult and challenging and expensive, can find a way to be legally attached to those children. It doesn't matter to everyone, Mm -hmm. but you brought it up. And I'm interested, is it legal for three parents to adopt a child? Was that important to you to have that connection that this is my child? What was that experience like for you?
0: So uh, the short answer is yes. In California, I was able to adopt as a third parent. Um, And I I was able to do it because of... The really hard sacrifices of queer families that came before, like the law existed because of uh, surrogates and egg donors and sperm donors who and and the families that they had uh, were a part of who had been advocating for this, and we kind of got got invited in <laughs> through that framework. Yeah, and so that's great. <laughs> so I so first of all, I'll say like yes, and and with a lot of gratitude, and it was really important to me a, a little bit because there would have been an uneven power dynamic had it not been true. Yeah. That would have been really tricky of like knowing that if we ever had a disagreement and we're, you know, we're good communicators, I think we're good at not having disagreements, but knowing that if we ever had a a really serious disagreement, they would hold all the power. Sure. Um, And it's it's reassuring to feel like that's not the case. Um, But I think it's also, it's just really helpful shorthand. Like if I'm talking to someone at, her preschool and say, and saying, you know, I'm Toby's other dad, we're all three legally your parents. Like that, that just like they they know what to do with that.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Um,
0: it, it resolves a lot of questions that if I wasn't a legal parent, I would don't quite know how I would resolve. Um and it it leads people to this interesting place. And I I wanna uh wanna name this too, where um kind of like you said, the the thing that we're doing. It's, it's new, but it's not really that fundamentally new. There have been queer families doing this, like three parents, four parents for a long time. There've been poly families doing this for a long time. But yeah. for some reason, because we're an ace person and a mixed gendered couple, the straight people in our lives feel like this is accessible for them to think about. In a way that it's not for anyone else, and we've seen this in the way that we've yeah. been covered in the press, especially how we're covered in the press relative to poly families, where um, even though we're doing the exact same thing, somehow the fact that sexuality is involved gets in the way of people seeing the like parenting and like day to day work wow. and relationship and benefit of just having two pairs of hands around, and so there's. Sure. There, there's this way in which, like, we we almost get more cre- a lot more credit than we deserve for trailblazing when, like, re- really we're just following queer people who other people don't know how to think about.
1: So, just to wrap up, um, this this felt really revelatory mm-hmm. to me. A lot of the subjects that we spoke about resonated with me, and I imagine resonated with the masses. So, I hope it gives an insight into really not just your experience, the experience of other people who are asexual or demisexual, but also just getting people to think a little bit more about the power they have, no matter what their sexuality is, to openly communicate and question the way that they live their lives. So that's really beautiful. But for young people who are listening right now, who who are hearing your story and going, that is exactly how I feel, Hmm. or nuances of what you've discussed, I resonate with that aspect of asexuality. What advice do you give to someone who's young, who might be feeling this way inside is thinking about telling people in their lives?
0: Um, There are so many resources now that didn't exist when I was younger. So um, uh, first of all, like there's Avon, which we mentioned. There are, there's a whole amazing world of web comics and graphic novels by Ace People about Ace Experience now. There are Mm. podcasts like Sounds Fake But Okay that you can go and listen to. There are... um, there's the book Ace by Angela Chen, which I really recommend for anyone who's curious about this topic. Like there's there's a lot of ways to go and find stories. And I think it's it's critical to find those stories because I think we still live in a world that tells you that if you are not drawn to sexuality the way that everyone else, or not everyone else, if you're not drawn to sexuality, um, then you're broken in some way. Mm. And uh, we're told so many stories about how that means we're going to be alone, about how that means that we're not really in touch with our bodies, that we're not really liberated, uh, about how that means that we're failing at, uh, we're failing the expectations that are put on us. And I think we owe it to ourselves as ACE people to dismantle those stories. And to 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 find the stories that challenge that narrative, that challenge those assumptions, and like, like just bathe in them to feel okay about ourselves,
1: mm.
0: and to have inspiration to figure out what kind of stories we want to write. Wow, and I guess the only other thing I am thinking about is
1: if you're an ally or a parent, if you're your mother, uh, and someone has come to you and said, "I'm asexual," do you have any advice? For them, uh, do you, what would you have wanted someone to say to you when you came out?
0: It is, it's really important to educate yourself. And the things to think about as an ally, educating yourself, are really around your own assumptions about why sex matters. Uh, there's, a, there's a need to, to, to kind of embrace and accept an ace person there's there's a need to to kind of un-velcro sexuality and intimacy mm. and like recognize how those two things can be different and also recognize how making letting those two things be different is really hard in the society we live in and it's something that someone's going to need support around um and that's where i think a, a lot of the stories i mentioned are, are still helpful to to understand how to do that um and uh i i think it is important to recognize what assumptions of sexuality are put on the body of the person you're supporting Mm. and to see their journey of liberation moving away from them.
1: Perfect, great. Thank you so much. This was really, really special. I appreciate it. Thank you. (sighs) Okay, we did it. How are you guys? How are you feeling? I know that this episode could have brought up some interesting feelings for some of you and if it did there are some resources that i think you should check out so minus 18 is the first one they're australia's lgbtqia charity they have a bunch of great resources online they hold wonderful events and they also offer trainings for classroom and workplaces around sexuality gender and creating a safe space for lgbtqia people they're also all over social you can follow them at minus one eight youth and you spell out one eight and their website is minus one eight dot org dot au but they are not a helpline so if you're looking for support in that way you can call q life they're at one eight hundred one eight four five two seven. 184 527 they offer a free phone service every day from 3 p.m to midnight um so if you want to talk to someone about your gender your sexuality your identity relationships any feelings that's a perfect place but if you're feeling really anxious and you're not up to talking on the phone, that's fine. They do have a web chat at qlife.org.au. Lifeline is also available 24 hours a day for crisis support and suicide prevention. So their number is 13 11 14. If you want to be part of the Come Out Wherever You Are community, you can follow us on Instagram at Kawa Podcast. That's C O W Y A Podcast. You can also follow me. Uh, my handle is at Sean Zepps. That's S E A N S Z E. P S come out wherever you are is a community. And I want as many people within this community, the LGBTQIA plus people, allies, friends, curious folks. I want everyone to have access to this powerful network of people. And the best way for that to happen is for you to share. So if you like this, you can share a link in your group chat text message, put it on your Instagram story, a little swipe up link, do whatever you want to help get the message out there. Out Wherever You Are is presented by me and me alone. No one helped me in the creation of the show. I'm kidding. <laughs> my name is Sean Zepps, but there are three wonderful people that we need to shout out. Um, my producer, my number one, Lindsay Green, our executive producer, Jennifer Goggin, and our audio producer is Darcy Thompson.
0: Listener.